0: Welcome to the Flying the Line Podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 7 Perils in Washington, Part 2 Fresh off the heels of ALPA's victory in the airmail fight of 1934, a new fight was brewing on the horizon over the structure in which pilots were paid. From the pilot's point of view, a straight monthly salary was unacceptable because it made no allowance for different types of flying, routes, or equipment. Northwest Airlines and Pan American Airways had used the monthly basis of pay from the beginning, and their pilots definitely did not like it. For pilots with foresight, an hourly system was no good because in the future, it would almost surely deprive them of the productivity gains associated with flying new, faster aircraft. They resolved to fight, and the focal point of this resistance was on TWA and United. Howard Hall was the primary go-between for ALPA on TWA. The TWA pilots were divided, and the company wanted to keep it that way. There was no doubt that the company had made promises of executive positions to a lot of pilots, provided they stay out of ALPA. At United, Dave Bankey had much better luck collecting the letters of resignation he intended to use as bargaining chips. In fact, Bankey's activities at United provided something of a laboratory for the techniques he would use later to create ALPA on a broader stage. He rented a room in the Morrison Hotel in Chicago on June 19, 1931, and spread the word that every United pilot interested in stopping the pay cut should meet there at a designated hour. The pilots who showed up to hear what Banky had planned to do with their pledges were so afraid of being discovered that they blocked the keyholes with toilet paper. Banky had a lot going for him. He had a reputation for trustworthiness and demonstrated leadership quality he brought from his days at the old National Air Pilots Association. Banke's vision of this new airline pilots organization was that it would be solely for working airline pilots. Barnstormers, crop dusters, and miscellaneous commercial pilots need not apply. Furthermore, He insisted that it cut across company lines to include all airline pilots, regardless of their employer. He was also determined that all airline pilots received the same pay for flying similar routes and equipment, regardless of which airlines they worked for, whether it was a major trunk carrier or a fly-by-night shoestring outfit. At the time of the Morrison Hotel meeting, there was a general decline in pilots' working conditions, pay, and status during the first full year of the Depression. This worked in Bankey's favor, as he was able to get the agreement of his fellow United pilots to confront management directly. The plan was for Bankey to present their signed, undated resignations to management, with the warning that if their salaries were cut, they would shut down the airline. They knew it was a long shot and that they could not win a protracted struggle. They knew they would eventually have no choice but to come back to work at a lower salary on the company's terms. But in early July 1931, Bankey asked for and got a meeting with the Chicago operations manager just before rumor had it that United was going to unilaterally impose the new reformed pay scale. Banke was accompanied by a committee of pilots who stood resolutely behind him as he solemnly presented his collection of resignations and asked that they be forwarded up the line. United's management was flabbergasted. They had no idea that the long-rumored unionization of their pilots had gotten so far, and they were hesitant to stick their necks out by reacting to it too quickly. For reasons that have never been fully explained, United's management proved conciliatory. They did not promise not to reduce pay, but they did promise to consult with the pilots before instituting any changes. Clearly, the pay issue was instrumental in the creation of ALPA. However, the mere existence of a union, particularly a small, unaffiliated one, would never be enough to thwart a major corporation. If ALPA were to survive and be effective, it had to have the backing of the larger labor movement, either an affiliation with the American Federation of Labor or the Railroad Brotherhoods. Banke ultimately decided on the AFL and proceeded to get a charter from it at the annual meeting in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Banke went personally to the meeting got the international charter to organize the craft of cockpit workers, and then kept it a secret while he awaited the upcoming Convention of Keymen, where he hoped to have it ratified. The Keymen ultimately ratified the affiliation with the AFL, although at first they too kept it a secret from the rest of the membership. This act was the key to ALPA's entry into the National Labor Board's jurisdiction, and finally, Decision 83. If Alba had not joined the AFL, it would have lacked the necessary connections to have its case heard. In December 1932, Postmaster General Walter Brown announced sharply reduced airmail subsidies to the contractors. This move was undeniably political made in direct response to President-elect Roosevelt's criticism of President Hoover's budget deficit and his announced intention to balance the budget with his New Deal. The immediate impact of this subsidy reduction was to pinch the airmail operator so hard that they had no choice but to cut pilot salaries to the bone. It was either that, or reduce stockholders' dividends, which was unthinkable. The average pilot of that era was intimately concerned with his airline's economic survival and at times would be willing to make substantial sacrifices to help his employer. The focal point of this managerial mentality among airline pilots was on the small airlines, whose owners often poor-mouthed their pilots into believing that any raise or failure to accept a reduction in pay would lead to the company's speedy collapse. Combating this kind of thinking was one of Banky's early challenges. Banky probably distrusted airline managers more than any other pilot in America. To him, it was evident that companies with similar sources of income should pay similar salaries. When managers claimed poverty, Banky automatically assumed they were lying, and he couldn't understand why pilots were so easily taken in. A national uniform pay scale for all pilots, regardless of the airline they worked for, was the rock upon which Banki built all other ALPA policies. The only problem was how could he get it? The August 1933 National Recovery Administration Code hearings did indeed propose a uniform national pay scale for airline pilots, but that scale was so low and the monthly hourly requirements so high that Banky fought successfully to have the pilots excluded from it. Title III of the operator's draft proposal code called for 140 hours per month as the maximum a pilot could fly and $250 per month as the minimum salary. American Airways president Lester Seymour testified that these figures were fixed with consideration for the smaller operators, and he insisted that the major operators would never pay their pilots such low salaries or work them so hard. Without warning, Ferrello LaGuardia, who was then running for mayor of New York City, attacked Seymour's proposals. He also pointed out that in the codes so far adopted by the National Recovery Administration the wages and working conditions specified usually corresponded closely to those being paid. With ALPA out of the Air Transport Code, the operators, who had been talking about reducing pilot salaries for so long, saw no reason to delay it any further. Now, Banky was faced with a genuine dilemma. The National Labor Board was the logical place for Banky to appeal. It was set up as an agency of the National Recovery Administration solely to adjudicate the differences arising under different interpretations of the code. But the problem was that ALPA was not subject to the code. How then could Banky possibly expect the National Labor Board to hear ALPA's case? Early in September 1933, just after the signing of the Air Transport Code, the operators formally announced that they were instituting the new pay system. It was then that Banky played his last card. He threatened a national strike. It was a desperate gamble, one that would have wrecked Alpa completely had it come to pass. Fortunately, the operators took it seriously. And shortly before the midnight deadline, with strike breakers in very short supply, the Secretary of the National Labor Board agreed to take on the airline pay dispute. The National Labor Board adopted the case because of an obscure clause that stated no industry operating under a code shall reduce pay levels below the pre code level. It was of no consequence that the intent of the act was clearly to cover workers in a code which pilots were not part of. What mattered? were the connections and the muscle of the AFL, which Banky made use of. After the crisis had passed, Banky admitted that if it had come to a strike, ALPA would have been finished. He figured that the pilots of American would have held together and walked out to the last man, while operations at TWA would have collapsed completely. Furthermore, Everything south and east of Chicago with United would have gone out, and west of Chicago, it would have been just about half. But ALPA's treasury only had enough to last about five days. After that, communications would have been cut and the union broken. But while Banky had staved off defeat under nearly impossible odds, there was still big trouble in ALPA the mere threat of a nationwide strike had been sufficient to unravel some shaky pilots, particularly those of TWA. It was at this time that one of ALPA's early stalwarts led the defection to a company union, the TWA Pilots Association. Things did not look good for airline operators from the very beginning of the National Labor Board hearings mostly because of the situation at TWA. There was a predisposition in the early New Deal years for government agencies to favor labor over management. The underdog aviators caught the favor of several National Labor Board members, particularly Senator Robert Wagner of New York, who wanted to know more about this TWA Pilots Association. A TWA lawyer named Henry Hogan all but ruined the operators during one exchange over the legitimacy of the company union, as he all but admitted to TWA's heavy-handed attempts to intimidate their pilots. This exchange caused the various airline presidents in attendance to squirm in their seats as their high-priced legal talent, hired to keep them out of trouble, proceeded to get them in it. It did not get any better when managerial spokesman for United told Senator Wagner that management was bold for standing their ground. Senator Wagner replied that it doesn't take much courage to fire a man and then threaten to cut off the generous airmail subsidies. Ending airmail subsidies would make any airline operator pro-union. The assembled airline managers promptly assured Wagner that on their lines, Nobody was intimidating pilots. The end result of the National Labor Board hearing was Decision 83. The compromise decision set the monthly maximum flight time at 85 hours, which was what Bankey had been pushing for all along. On the troublesome pay question, he gave in to the operators by establishing a basic hourly pay, which would increase with the speed of the aircraft, plus a small mileage increment. The operators were shocked. Decision 83 gave the pilots an automatic share of any productivity gains associated with new aircraft, something they believed should accrue exclusively to stockholders. Although Banky had originally opposed a straight hourly wage, he was willing to accept one because it was geared to the speed of the aircraft. The National Labor Board staff subsequently converted the Decision 83 formula into a scale matched to each aircraft type, and on December 15, 1933, they presented it to the full board. Although Banki was pleased with it, the operators were not, but there was really nothing they could do about it. By the time Bankey decided that Decision 83 was the something definite about pilot pay he wanted to include in the Air Mail Act, the very existence of the National Recovery Administration and all its subsidiaries like the National Labor Board was under legal challenge in the courts. In 1934, the National Recovery Administration would be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Bankey rushed to prevent the pilot's pay provisions from going down with the National Recovery Administration. Bankey stayed in Washington and worked hard to have the pay provisions included in the new Air Mail Act. Soon enough, the private operators were once again flying the mail, and ALPA's members were back at work. Bankey's strategy of backing FDR during the Air Mail contract cancellations had paid off. And because Banky and Alpa were his only supporters inside the industry during the crisis, FDR paid his debt to Banky by calling for the inclusion of the Decision Eighty-Three formula in any new airmail legislation passed by Congress. Later, the substance of Decision Eighty-Three would be placed into the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. Also in 1934 a consensus was forming in favor of a full-time professional staff for ALPA. Everyone knew that satisfactory progress would be much more difficult in the future if ALPA continued doing things as cheaply as it had in the past. As a growing membership increased dues revenue, most pilots seemed ready to fulfill a prophecy made by the legendary American pilot, Doc Ator, who told the 1931 Convention of Cayman, that in his opinion, the Union should not be lenient on dues as airline pilots deserved a high-class organization with high-powered men that would cost money, all in the interest of future protection. In March 1934, the Central Executive Council authorized a mail ballot on the question of making Banky the full-time president of ALPA. The response was overwhelmingly affirmative. Even the most uninvolved pilot of 1934 could hardly help but appreciate the things Banki had achieved over the past three years. Likewise, the membership realized it wasn't fair to expect Banky to spend his days flying, only to come home to Chicago for another long night of unpaid Alpa work down at the Troy Lane Hotel. No one could be certain what the future held. But it was obvious that more battles lay ahead, and that the gains of the past year were far from secure. ALPA's workload would surely increase, and a part-time operation would not be able to handle it. Already looming were potential enforcement problems. What could ALPA do if some hard-nosed Bush League airline simply refused to pay its pilots the scale mandated by Decision 83? The question was about to become more than rhetorical. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 7, Part 2 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins, copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes. Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2019. All rights reserved.